Welcome to episode 24 of the Corporate Real Estate Insider Podcast. We have a really interesting show today uh, covering a whole host of topics. Gensler came out with a really interesting new survey. Uh, we've got John who wants to lead us off with an interesting story about some tough decisions that other brokerage firms are making, going to be talking about the economy at large, and of course, uh, very likely that we work files for bankruptcy in the next couple of days, so we'll be talking about that. John, why don't you take us away with uh, some tough decisions these larger brokerage firms are having to make? Yeah, this is just an article that caught my eye. I don't want to spend a lot of time on it because it is just a hard decision. But, you know, we often talk about how landlords do have some sway and some leverage over the full-service shops because, of course, they give them listings. Um, and so here, this story really caught my eye. It's in CoStar. It's in a few other um, publications. Uh, Brookfield fires Cushman and Wakefield from some U.S. listings November 2nd. Um, it goes on to say, Brookfield Asset Management, one of the world's largest owners of commercial real estate, has fired Cushman and Wakefield from some U.S. leasing assignments, according to a person familiar with the situation. The termination came after a dispute arising from a failed office deal in New York, the person said. Cushman and Wakefield, based in Chicago, wanted to move some of its New York offices into a Brookfield skyscraper, but later pulled out of the deal, according to Bloomberg, which reported the news earlier. It just really catches my eye, like, mm, brutal. Um the landlords do, in fact, have sway and leverage and some levers they can pull if those full-service shops, um, you know, uh, behave in a way that's contrary to the, what they would wish to see. And it's a really tough decision if you're Cushman Wakefield, right? Here, this is probably one of their largest global clients. I mean, Brookfield's one of the largest owners of real estate in the world. Cushman Wakefield uh, has done a lot of work for them and has probably done an excellent job representing them as an institutional landlord. Yet Cushman Wakefield reported a third quarter loss and they're sitting there saying, okay, is now really the right time to spend all of this money, all this capital to relocate our, you know, major New York office into another building with Brookfield. And I'm sure there was extensive calculus run of, you know, what's the value of the listings and the commission value of uh, the transactions they expect to do for Brookfield. And then also what's the increase in their cost. The other thing that's challenging here is that you've got to remember that these brokerage firms, at the end of the day, they have to keep the brokers that work at these companies happy. And now you have probably a handful, maybe a dozen or a couple dozen brokers at Cushman Wakefield that are you know, just top institutional landlord representatives. And they've now probably been fired from their largest account because Cushman Wakefield got into this negotiation for space, probably got way down the line market conditions changed, and then they said, shoot, we can't do the deal anymore. So yeah, it's a it's a really tough situation to be in. It is interesting that that Brookfield's taken this approach. I'm sure that the news doesn't, you know, cover all all of the, you know, sides. I'm sure Brookfield has a good reason and Cushman Wakefield has a good reason, but still, um, pretty dramatic conclusion to saying, hey, we can't move forward with our headquarters or with this regional hub because the costs are too high. I can't say it any differently than I love this. I just love it because, you know, I, I having worked many years at these large firms, we talk um, as an industry about the pressures and the conflicts in the space between owners and landlords um, and brokerage firms. And one of the ways that you win listings, uh, having uh, sat in the room and given ideas around how tenants think and operate to these firms 
one of the ideas you hear a lot is let's move our office to their building as part of the strategy. And I'm sure they won the business by by bringing that to the table, right? And <clears throat> and good for Cushman for putting their shareholders and and honoring the fiduciary responsibility they have as a public company versus the you know short term goals and objectives of a, an owner or an agreement that was made by a leasing team. But this just shows on paper in the public's eye, the true pressure that is coming down on the brokerage shops to deliver for owners where, where they'll make drastic is, is Cushman one of the, uh, you know, top landlord teams in New York? Yes, it is. It, it's, there's no debating that. Uh, is there a better team? Who who knows, right? Um, but certainly you're not out on a limb to think that they work um, or have the track record to work for, for owners like Brookfield in New York City as their landlord representatives. Uh, but this is just a demonstrating clearly the pressures on the brokerage shops to deliver for owners. What better time to separate the decision-making between a tenant and um, their broker from from the pressures of a landlord is, is, is we're seeing in the marketplace today. Yeah, it begs the question of, say in this example, that it's not Cushman Wakefield that's the tenant, and it's a client of Cushman Wakefield that is the tenant, and Brookfield's doing everything they possibly can to try and get their building leased. Uh, it seems ostensible that they could exert some pressure on any firm that they that's that they're a client of to try and put pressure on the tenants that they represent to try and leave space in their building at favorable terms. Um, so it's, it's, yeah, it's a little bit murky. I mean, not to say that, you know, people are out there, you know, being unethical or making bad decisions or something, but the way that this industry is set up does create these conflicts of interest that sometimes are really difficult to avoid if you're a firm that represents tenants and you're a firm that represent landlords. And it just so happens that you're representing a tenant and the landlord is one of your company's largest clients. Like that's a really tough situation to be in. And this news really highlights that. So let me say this at the risk of sounding like a personal plug. I mean, it also makes me want to say on the pod, something I've been saying on a lot of calls lately. And it's this idea that we're, we're really busy on early lease restructures where, you know, these, these old leases are now above market in some cases, considerably above market. And so, um, you know, I feel like there's a lot of landlords, uh, I call it the, a strategy of pray and pretend, where you sort of pretend this isn't happening and pray your tenant renews without somebody educating them about what's actually going on in the market. Um, one one uh, symbol of this is the idea that the asking rents in large uh, parts aren't, are unchanged, and so they're not reflective of real market at all. And I would just say that in this moment um, of sort of price discovery on lease restructures, uh, the person sitting in the seat as the tenant side broker has never been more important. Yeah, I think it was a funny story last week. I uh, I had a client. We were trying to determine what we're going to tour uh, for buildings this week, and I told a listing agent at a premier high rise downtown that we were not going to end up touring their building, just given what he suggested pricing was to be. And there's so much availability in downtown Seattle. About a third of all office buildings have uh, are is available. Um, and interestingly, I got a call from the owner themselves. This is an institutional owner uh, later that afternoon and said, "Hey, I really needed a tour of the building. You know, disregard what so and so said about the asking rate. We here's where we're actually 
we're probably more in line with this range. And I thought that was really telling because you know, here we have the brokers doing their job, right? They're trying to promote things for their landlords and keep pricing as high as possible. Yet feedback gets back to the owner. Owner is like, hey, we're going to miss out on a full floor tour uh, with a large credit tenant. Um, so they call me to tell me otherwise. I thought that was really telling of the of the world we're in today. Yeah, that's that's uh, that certainly is the the. Um the world of it, it's just I hate to to just start using using companies' names, but it, just for example here in Boston, the if you look back at some of the largest transactions, State Street Bank, InterSystems, which is a technology company, uh, Legos, right? Everyone knows what Legos are. Um, Harborvest Partners, um, they all went, they all moved, they all went to new buildings. And they all went to, they were represented by the firm that represented the owner of the building they ultimately selected. And I could name 10 more, um, you know, over the years here that have that, had that happen. And it's just, to me, it's a scary proposition in the industry when the market is shifting so quickly. And some of those deals, uh, maybe it was the right move, maybe the pricing was good, right? But in the market we're in today, we're where rental rates are declining so rapidly and the marketplace isn't capturing that value on paper. It is not in the comps that are coming out. It's not in the asking rents that are listed. It's really in the negotiations when you drive the value. How do you actually know unless you are negotiating independently and using a team that is independent from the other side, right? You just don't know where the bottom is. So even f even if, um, you know, ultimately you make the decision as a company that, you know, it's a risk or a conflict that you are, you are um, confident can be overcome, how do you, how, where's the bottom? What are you chasing towards? And the data that's in, in place in the marketplace and that your team provides you is, is, is looking behind. It's not what's going to happen next. And you got to keep chasing, you got to keep pushing. And I don't know how you do that when, when, you know, both sides of the equation work for the same company. Okay. Really interesting. Well, uh, I think all of this ultimately stems from just challenged economic conditions, right? Uh, Cushman Wakefield would be doing this lease if they felt that it was responsible for their P and L to do so. Uh, I think that leads us into uh, another good area that we wanted to focus on today, which is just the outlook from all of the major brokerage companies, right? Uh, we've seen earnings calls occur for basically all of the publicly traded brokerage firms over the last couple of weeks. Sentiment has been largely negative. I mean, many of these companies reported a third quarter loss, um, you know, and then in addition to that, a lot of these companies are saddled with debt that's just getting more and more expensive. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about that, John. I know you had some comments that you wanted to add in on this. Yeah, again, uh, article that caught my eye. This again, going from the news and CoStar uh, titled "Largest Real Estate Brokerage is Braced for Another Year of Declines in Deals." Um, I'll just pull out some quotes. Um, we think we are at the bottom. Oh, here's an optimistic one. We think we're at the bottom and we think it's only going to get better. Newmark CEO Barry Gosen told shareholders, the question is how much better. Okay. So that's the only, uh, I think the only optimistic uh, quote on this. It goes on to say CBRE, JLL, Cushman and Wakefield, Colliers and Newmark executives began pushing back expectations for a quick recovery, warning of tough months ahead. 
JLL CEO Christian Ulrich said he had expected markets to start recovering during the second half of this year. He now estimates that it will be the second half of 2024 at the earliest. Uh, quote, as a result of the industry-wide softness and transaction activity, we're extending the timeline to achieve all of our midterm targets beyond 2025. Um, Robert Shibuya, CEO at Moore Partners, said uh, the worst is yet to come. Um, the consensus of the people I'm talking to every day in the market is not going to get better in 2024, especially if your capital market's focused. Uh, most of what I'm hearing from brokers on the street is that hopefully conditions will start getting better in early or mid-2025. Um, okay, so I'm old enough to tell you that history doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. And I remember survive till 95. Uh, here we go again, survive till 25, apparently. Yeah, one of the interesting things on, on the other side of this equation is that you've seen a handful of major landlords, one of which being Boston Properties, come out and say that their view of the challenges of the office market is not uh, remote work at all, and that it's actually economic driven, just macro economy driven to the slowing down the decisions. And uh, I think this is a, a really good segue into Gensler's workplace study, which Brian, I know that you want to talk about some of the statistics around people traveling into downtowns, people approving of working in CBDs, the amenities that exist are, are really shocking. I think that a lot of people are, you know, reading the headlines of, you know, uh, downtowns are falling apart and overrun with crime and homelessness. And there's a, there's a very negative spin. And when you actually talk to the people that are working in these CBDs, uh, the, their view is, is quite different. So, Brian, let's, I, I'd love for you to talk a little bit about the, the, the Gensler study that came out recently. Yeah, thanks, Tucker. It's, um, it's very interesting, and there's a lot. I, and I'll, uh, if we can put it in the show notes, a uh, link to it. But it's a very good, good uh, report. And what Gensler did, I think the first year was during the pandemic, maybe 2020 or 2021, they started with four cities. It's now up to, it's got to be 44 cities. I don't know the number, but it's significantly more. Uh, and they keep adding more cities. And, um, you know, you're right. There's a, there's a optimism around many CBDs, right? So um, a great CBD experience is driven by a blend of recreation, discovery, aesthetics, and work, right? So uh, the strongest predictors of a great CBD experience, one, my CBD is a great place to have fun, which is number one, which is uh, scary for probably a lot of our listeners thinking about where their CBDs are today. But that's um, that's number one. Number two is my CBD is a great place to discover new things. Uh, number three is it's in, a, in, in an attractive area. And number four, um, it's a great place to work, right? So um, those are the top four. And as you dig more into it, um, I noticed that 82% of downtown employees agree that their CBD provides a great experience. So I think, I think by and large, the sentiment for people that work in a CBD is very positive. The, um, the other statistic that I thought was very interesting is 66% of hybrid CBD workers, so workers that work downtown um, on a hybrid basis, visit their downtowns at least some days they work remotely. So people are still using these urban areas, which I think, you know, to Tucker's point, I think the, the concept that, that we're in, you know, we're in a, a um, point in the curve where the CBD is going to go away and there's going to be all this mass carnage and, and 
and they're going to be have to reinvent themselves completely. I think that's that's untrue. What I what I'm reading is that the ones that are able to to activate other portions of an existing CBD base, right? So it's it's fun. Like what is that? It's um, ones that are, their aesthetics are still good. So they're still providing a high quality, safe environment for their people are going to prosper. And uh, ones that are not able to do some of these things are going to fall behind. But it's not sea changes in in what they have to do. It's it's in the margins, right? There's already two thirds of people that are visiting it. If they work there, they're already visiting it. So um, I think it's very positive. And I'll give you an example from the tenant perspective. So I've got two clients. One um, company that here in Boston, they're opening a. They're they're not in Boston today, but they want to open a location in Boston, and they're very uh, financial focused for this new location. Given um, you know, given what they're reading in the press and the opportunities they think is available in the marketplace, and we're looking in Boston. There's kind of three distinct neighborhoods that are kind of core. Right, you've got the seaport. And you've got the back bay, which are true live, work, play. There's a host of amenities. There's a lot of fun. They're very clean. The seaport's brand new. Um, so it brings all four of those of those kind of key criteria. Same with the back bay, but for different reasons. Then you've got the, the former we used to call financial district. Now maybe you'd call it downtown. It doesn't bring those mix of uses. It's, it's predominantly workers. And the pricing from a real estate perspective is dis- is distinctly different. You've got maybe 25 to 40% discounts if you look at subleases, maybe a 50% sub uh, discount if you look at subleases from those neighborhoods. And you know, we're getting brought back to the, to look at downtown because of the financials, right? So there's some really really nice space. Some of these tech companies built out amazing offices once you get into the buildings. And once you get into the buildings and you start convincing yourself, wow, I can see my people really wanting to work here. But they don't come to, in my opinion, they're not coming to work because of of the space, right? And then you've got another client of mine who's looking at Atlanta. And very immediately, when we before we even kicked the project off, they ruled out their downtown CBD. And they went to one specific neighborhood that brought all four of these functions together and they're and, and the the pricing is much higher, um, and the the experience you get when you get there is so much better. But they're not. As we start to continue to give them data, it's like okay, if this is too expensive, here's the alternative. And they would rather take less space or potentially even start in co working than even consider going into the part of the city that doesn't bring all these different um, aspects together for them. But that was interesting. I love it. You're coming back. I think it was just the last pod that we talked about. I introduced this notion of the quality premium spread. Um, you know, it's just economic osmosis. It happens in every cycle. Eventually, the stuff that nobody wants gets cheap enough that they have to pay attention to it. You're saying your clients are saying, well, at a 50% discount, I guess we need to take a look at it, right? So there's only so much of a spread that the market, will, that the human nature will support before we say, hmm, there's value over there. It's like it's like economic osmosis where you flow to the, to the value, which is going to naturally pull down um, the high, high quality, high end of the pyramid. Yeah, but I'd like to think that even with that value, you're right, John. You are absolutely right. They need to do it. I think they, they need to do it anyway, even if they don't plan on going there, just because they need to tell the story to their executives uh, and their board when they ultimately make the decision that they evaluated it. But I don't think the building is going to drive the experience and the success, 
even at that discount. I don't care if it's free, right? Until you get to the point where there's enough of the other pieces of that downtown, and that's what this study tells me, is it's really not – the building is a 25% – you know, the building, the space is 25% of the overall equation. 75% of it, you can't impact by the deal. And that until you can solve that, I don't know how, I don't know how you, you evaluate this solely based upon the economics of the, of the proposals or of the options that you're looking at. I don't think it is. I mean, yes, location is a huge driver. Nobody's going to want to come to work if they don't feel safe or, if it's just uninspiring or it's a part of town that feels more like a ghost town than a downtown. Um, but I do believe, and, and you mentioned a lot about costs and value. I think this is a good segue into something I want to talk about today, which is I'm part of a panel on November 20th being hosted by um, what I regard as one of the best architecture firms in the country, MBBJ. And the discussion is about um, the quality of space. Um you know, the the office experience, and I've said this on previous pods, you guys, is that if it's not better than home, um, why go in, right? Like, if in some cases, you know, office attendance is obligatory. And when the space is bland, boring, uninspiring, commodity, office space, even if, even if, even if you're in a Class A tower downtown, I guarantee you, that obligatory attendance is going to be met with reluctance. And that's what we're all seeing right now, right? Like Amazon has now given their managers authority to terminate employees not coming in three days a week. Um, and, you know, thankfully for Amazon, they by and large have really nice space. Um, but if you're in boring space, I don't care if you're in the best part of town, not the bad, but the, the best part, it's still going to be met with resistance. And so, you know, Brian, you, you, you talked about value and, and deals, and we're talking about how the market is so advantageous to getting great terms. And this is a problem, I think, that has come up, you know, recently where I've spent the past 20 years of my career focused primarily on costs, right? Of course, quality is an important factor in terms of where you are, and the architects do an amazing job of building cool space. But if you think about it, those that serve corporations are often focused on the quantity of space that you're taking and the cost of that space. And so you're looking at how much space you're taking per square foot um, uh, per person, right? So the amount of space, and then what is that cost? And those two things are great, but they neglect the critical factor of what I call quality, right? Um, and what if, so the question is, as we start to get, as, as C-level executives tell me that like, they want people back in the office and they want to get people there, keeping in mind the Gensler study, um, results, which Brian just talked about, if you get the location as well as you possibly can and go to a good part of the city, what if companies enhance their understanding of the value of the performance of the real estate um, based on the satisfaction and the attendance of their employees? Now, granted, you know, um, you might have people that are coming in, you know, not five days a week, but starting to understand the quality of that space, because to my earlier point, if your space is boring, um, and gosh, heaven forbid you're in the wrong part of town. Nobody's going to want to come in. And I've had, every company's different, but I've had numerous conversations recently with C-level executives. And I say recently, let's call it last six months, where there's a consistent desire to encourage employees to come back to some degree. Um, and I'm a believer that if you provide an exceptional work environment that surpasses the comfort of your house, 
those goals can be achieved without significant coercion. And so imagine a world where instead of pulling people to the office, threatening to terminate them if they're not badging in three days a week, um, what if employees came in uh, under their own volition? That would be novel. <laughs> um, and so if you think about like what that perfect hybrid scenario is, as I, you know, which is the buzzword of the last 12, 18 months, maybe 24 months, I consider hybrid um, a situation where a company adopts their own flexible work arrangement. And I can't speak for every company. Some might be more than others in terms of how much you can work from home. But you also find a way to maintain a strong sense of belonging and unity to that company. And that's otherwise said as culture. And we talk a lot about culture at Hughes Marino. Um, and that's hard to do without cool office space. So for all the CFOs out there, I get it. Office space is expensive. I know that. Um, but nowhere, and ask your HR team, nowhere is it as expensive as the disconnect of employees and how that can hurt your business long-term, right? Or even immediately in some cases. And so focus on quality versus just basing your real estate decisions solely on financial metrics, or maybe even both. And so my last point here is think about this. I'm not going to name names because I don't want to call out anyone specifically, but um, we got company A and company B, okay? What if company A had an employee happiness score of like a, nine out of 10. Okay. And their best, their fiercest competitor had a score of four. Okay. Company B. What does that tell company B about their ability to retract and retain that top talent? You know, our labor markets are still pretty tight and not only would they be getting less quality con or, um, a, a, a talent, but what's the output of those people as well? Not just the talent, but is their output subpar to company A? And so um, I think real estate has something to do with all of this. And I think to Brian's point, yes, location is important, but I also think people need to start focusing on getting really high quality space that encourages people to come in and thrive because I've been in plenty of offices over the past six months that are very uninspired. And frankly, I wouldn't want to go in either. Let me, let, let me, so I don't disagree with you, but nowhere if, if you know, if you don't get the location right, you could have the greatest office, right? In, in you could have the greatest office, and if you don't get the location right, then no one's coming. And I'll just give you two two examples. So the, this in the appendix of this study, the question is: I would go to my business district more, meaning my office, if there were more dot dot dot. And the questions are around safety, parking, ability to to discover new things, restaurants, culture store variety, family activities, parks, accessibility, and walkability. Do you know what they, in, in Seattle, Owen, you know what the number one thing they want more of? They want more safety. You could have the greatest Absolutely. office in the world, yeah. and if, if people don't feel safe, they're not coming. In Boston, number one they want more, parking. It costs over $500 a month in Boston to park your car on a, on a uh, monthly basis. On a daily rate, it's over $40 a day. So I forget who the CEO was, but I think it was um, one of the, the major financial institutions talked about the they, if you start to do the math on an individual budget, how much money people save by not commuting five days a week, right? It's around, I mean, it's hundreds of dollars to take the commuter train into Boston or New York City a, a month. The cost of food, because you're eating at home versus you're eating out for lunch, 
the cost of parking if you're driving, the cost of going out after work, the cost of clothing because you have to buy more expensive clothing. So I think there's so many issues. I think the quality, if you can solve every, if you can solve at a, at a higher rate some of the other issues, including the location, you don't need the, the best space in the marketplace because your people want to come for other reasons than the space. If people are solving, I think that to solve the issue because of the space is putting the cart before the horse. People aren't going to come because you have the nicest space in the market. They're going to come for a lot of other reasons. And if the space is good or great, I don't think there's a, I don't think there's a difference in my personal opinion. Hey, Olin, I love that you're bringing it back to quality and you're separating it from hybrid. Like, I don't care if you're coming in two days, three days, four days or five, what you're coming into matters. And it reminds me of this uh, talk I gave, developed and gave pre-pandemic uh, a, a number of times. Uh, the role of real estate in organizational culture. Um, and cut to the finish line. I, I won't make you listen to the whole talk. The, uh, but I built a simple three-tiered or three-level pyramid. At the basic, it's got to be functional. Like you need to have a super fast connectivity. You need to have the tools that you need when you need them. So functional is the, the foundation. Uh, in the middle of the pyramid, wouldn't it be cool if the space was inspiring, inspiring your team to do their best work? And the top of the pyramid, I think the, the most elusive and, and uh, um, less understood is authentic. Whereas if you've got a surfboard over your reception desk, I hope it's because your founders surf. You can't just sort of make it up. And my example of that for our company built on our core values, you know, top first three, always do the right thing, deliver excellence in everything we do and embrace the family spirit. You know, when we gather as a team and it's in this living room in our headquarters building, um, so anyway, it's got to be real. It's got to be authentic. That's uh, what you're bringing us back to is the quality well, of the space. Yeah. And again, I think I started just in my own defense. I said, nobody's going to suggest that you lease space in a part of town where people don't feel safe coming into work. I'm suggesting you nail both points. And, you know, some of you might have seen open eyes, um, big news last week where they leased 400,000 square feet in San Francisco from um, Uber and, you know, Sam Altman made a really good quote. Um, it got glossed over by many, um, but I'll, I'm going to just say it for the sake of the pod. He said, quote, I think definitely one of the tech industry's worst mistakes in a long time was that everybody could go full remote forever and startups didn't need to be together in person. And, you know, there was going to be uh, no loss of creativity. He went on to say, I would say that the experiment of that is over. Uh, and the technology is not yet good enough that people can be full remote forever, particularly on startups. And so they're no longer a startup, they lease 400,000 square feet. Um, but my point is, is that people are starting to realize that you figure out what your appropriate cadence is for coming into the office. And nobody's going to profess that, you know, what you should be, whether it be one to three, four, uh, or five, or whatever it might be in between. But we are human beings, okay? We are meant to be together to some degree and figure out what that is for you. Provide your people an amazing place to come in where they actually are happy when they're there. And of course, on the location side, make it safe and accessible. Can, can we all agree on something? I don't know if we can, but maybe. Is, is the approach that Amazon took by saying, like, you're, you're gonna, you have to be here or your manager has the power to fire you is the wrong approach in this environment? I that, I'll second that. It's we scary, also that some? approach. It really is. And I feel bad for the people 
that work there. What should they do instead, Brian? That's a good question, Tucker. But the answer is, do you value people enough that they are, you can't be black and white? I think that the, the marketplace is such where, you know, it's just, it's impossible to be that black and white with your people. And it really shows that their culture is broken in my mind. So it's a much bigger conversation than what they should do. It's what they want to be as a company and how they treat their people. Um, because for you to co- for them to come out publicly and say that it's just it's a slap in the face to a lot of people I'm sure and, and also there's other ways to get people back I mean measure performance okay and part of performance could be what's your contributions are to the culture of this company okay if you're never here we don't ever see you um, it's hard to contribute to the culture right it's hard to um, nurture younger professionals. It's hard to mentor people. It's hard to add to the contributions around the water cooler. There's things you can do to measure performance, and performance isn't just someone's output based on the amount of lines of code they're writing. Um, it could be what you're contributing to the office uh, on the days that the rest of your team is here. And so there's ways to do it without taking the heavy hand and threatening termination. Um, and if one's performance doesn't improve, well, guess what? Then you have a way of terminating them. So... That's that's my thought there. I think the flip side to that, Owen, is that if you talk to somebody whose job is to primarily write code, they would say they would probably disagree. They'd be like, my only function is to write good code. And of course, depending on the size and scale of a project you're working on, uh, writing good code could involve collaborating with with other people, right? Obviously, if you have a smaller coding project that's capable of one person to do, it's usually most efficient for just one person to do it. But I think those people would say, look, you, you can quantify my output and I can prove to you that I'm more productive at home. And I, I think the the primary difference between why companies want these people in and perhaps why these people want to be home is that without any stickiness, without any culture, without any community, then really it it's so easy for these people to leave companies and go somewhere else. Hey, I just got a you know 3% raise and I'm working remotely. I don't know anyone at this company. I don't know anyone at the new company. Who cares? I get paid more. And I think that that's primarily a, a, a big contributing reason why these companies want people to be in person, even if they have a job that they can do productively from home, is it's a way to keep people. And there's sort of this self-selection that goes on. If you can get people to come into the office and be part of the community, then they're less likely to leave. And that doesn't necessarily mean that their performance is going to be better or worse than somebody that that works from home, but it's a way to self-select people in that you have a much higher probability of being able to retain. And being able to retain people at a higher rate is really good for business. And I think companies have realized that. Yeah, Tucker, I don't disagree with you, but I will tell you, the, I think that's a bit of a crutch for, for people and for, for both sides. For the employee that's saying that their performance is as good at home, it's, and it's a challenge because companies expect you to perform just as well or or maybe even better if you're in the office but what what they don't measure typically and maybe they don't measure it well but they don't measure it is the non-technical part if you're a coder your job is to write so much code to complete so much projects within a certain period of time right and be a part of the team what they don't measure really well is that when you're not sitting at your desk coding you're talking to the person in the cube next to you. You're talking to coworkers. You're you're in the cafeteria helping with the subsidy on the on the food that the company's paying for. They're not measuring all of those things. Companies know 
that if you're here, you're adding more value than what you are truly measured on. And they don't really have a way to measure that, but they know it's there. And when you talk about the productivity and the and how uh, valuable an employee is, it's not just, hey, I did, you assigned me this, I completed it. And that's what they, the employee wants it to be. You gave me this, I'm doing it, I'm as productive. What the employer wants is you to be there to do that and still check that box at the same, at the same uh, proficiency. But also, they want you there as part of the community to mentor and teach and be a part of the culture, to get more sticky, to be a part of the company. And until you can get those pieces together and, and be real about it and find a way to measure it and have it be a part of that performance... Like, Owen, I agree with you 100%, Owen. It, it shouldn't be a black and white, you're here, you're badging in, or you're getting fired. It needs to be, as part of your performance, we're measuring these softer things. Then then how, you know, it, it makes it very difficult to, for them to be even having the same conversation between employee and employer. I think what it really comes down to is, are you coding the right things, right? And that's the reason to be, especially for startups, when you're in uh, the office, when you have higher collaboration, are you working on the right projects? Like not how efficient are you at coding, but what's the efficacy of what you're working on? How does that code or how does that product you're working on relate to the customer experience, right? And I think that's what's sacrificed. And when you're dealing with uh, more cutting edge companies or companies that are building and shipping products really quickly, then it's it's way way more important to be in the office. But if you're at a you know Fortune 100 company and you're one of you know several hundred or several thousand coders and you're set up in a way where it's like, hey, look, this is your task. Take care of the task, and you have no input or even really understanding of how to ask the right questions of how to make the code better. All you all you know is like, this is what I need to do. Then I think you could argue that if they can process more work. Uh, more accurately in a shorter period of time from home that is better for them to be at home uh, for, for them um, and from a performance standpoint. But I do think that, and we've already seen this with the statistics, that there's significantly higher turnover of people in remote roles. And com- the smart companies have realized that. And the smart companies are now requiring people to come in. And if you hire people that are new to your company and you say, hey, look, we're not a remote company. You have to be here. And if you're not, then don't take this job. Then you have an environment where you're back to a, a pre-pandemic era where the norm is to have everyone in the office. And there's nobody complaining, oh, it was so nice during COVID when we all got to work from home five days a week. It's like, no, be grateful if you get to work from home one day a week because that's our policy. So I think, I think smart companies are self-selecting the talent that they want and getting people that are in the office that have less turnover and a higher performance. Yeah, the best, I love what you said, and I will, you said the best companies are selecting the talent they want. They want. And so I think that's, you just kind of typified like how this greater discussion of hybrid work and office space and coming in, coming not, or staying at home, it's, there's no single answer. Um, And, you know, unless you're an automaton that just kind of writes code and, you get told what you have to achieve this week. And if you do it, great. If you don't, you fail. But we don't really care if we ever see you or not. Sure. Like those people are an anomaly in some respects, but um, 
I think you, we, we've had some great points here and I think it's all boils down to like every company is different and every company is going to be seeking a different type of employee. And so in cases like what Tucker's talking about, there might be some companies that um, self-select based on their policies. And there are others that will self-select based on their, their own policies, which might, might be much different than the company that's back in the office. But I think all Brian and I are trying to say is that when you have to make it a, when you have to publicly threat um, that you're going to be terminated um, as a result of not coming in, I think you need to start taking a look at your culture because it shouldn't be such where you're having to make threats to ask people to do their job and adhere to the policies and the culture of the organization. So if somebody gets hired at a company that is predominantly in the office four days a week and they get to work from home one day a week, there should be no there should be no coercion of like trying to come into the office. That's just what you're signing up for. Um, and if you're a primarily remote company, then don't ex- you know do expect pushback if all of a sudden you tell people to come back because you've afforded people this luxury of working from home five days a week and to all of a sudden do a 180 is going to be challenging. So we can go around in circles. I think this is a great discussion, and I imagine our listeners are. Um, either nodding their heads or shaking their heads, depending on who's talking. I love it. I don't know, guys. I think that the four of us real estate people should talk more about coders, uh, since we're all such experts in uh, coding and technology, you know, (laughs) Python, all that. So, okay, Uh, this has been a great episode, covered a lot of topics. Uh, Thanks so much, everyone, for listening. That concludes episode 24. We'll be back in two weeks with episode 25. Thanks again.